Today we'll be discussing how comedians adopt personas, and we'll continue our previous conversation on physician burnout. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not burnt out. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing how comedians adopt characters or personas for comedy. And we'll be continuing our previous discussion on physician burnout, this time focusing on what we can do to address it. But before that, Ali, how you doing? Oh, I'm great. I hear you're dabbling in some movie theater uh, viewing behavior. Yeah, never again, never again. No, but I have saw two movies recently. And uh, yeah, I was in the theater. And in Canada, at least where we live in Ontario, they have a no eating or drinking in the theater. Yeah, yeah. that's why I didn't <laughs> want to do it. A movie without popcorn is is no movie at all, as far as I'm concerned. Two things I could take or leave, pizza and popcorn. If you said I can't have either of those for the rest of my life, I'd be like, yeah, that's good. Sure. But the listeners should know that as you say that, you shove a bag of junior mints down your throat with one hand and a bunch of uh, raspberry jujubes in your mouth with the other hand. So it's not like you're some hero. You're a candy guy. Yeah. I'm a candy guy. Yeah, I'm a candy guy, not a salty guy. So, uh, or am I salty? (laughs) Isn't that ironic? The saltiest of my friends and just so full of sugar. Yes. There you go. Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? So... I saw Spider-Man No Way Home. And you know why I saw that? Because everyone says it's the best. Yeah. It is. It's great. My daughter went to see it and she wanted to talk about it so much and spoiled two things within like one minute. I'm like, you got to stop talking right now. (laughs) And so I'm just like, I can't wait to see this on Disney Plus. I got to go see it. So she doesn't ruin it for me. So I'm blaming her. Which age daughter? Older or younger? Older one. The older one, she's 13. So she went to go see it. She's a snitch, huh? Good to know. Yeah. And this movie is, it's. I mean, I suggest everybody see it. It's a ton of fun. It certainly helps if you've seen all the Spider-Man movies, including the older ones up until this one. It gives you a bit of context. And I probably really shouldn't ruin it anymore because there are so many spoilers in it. And I think it's tons of fun. I don't think everything really makes sense if you really think about it. But it's good. You know, it's already made so much money. I think it's only maybe behind Avengers Endgame now in terms of box office. And by the time this episode we're recording comes out, it may have exceeded it. So it's huge. It certainly is, I'm sure, spreading COVID around everywhere, which is what I realized from uh, being at the movie theater. Maybe I'll tell you guys about that in a second. But then I also saw The Matrix resurrections and both of these movies are i don't know if ali you ever saw the south park when they had the member berries oh yeah member 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 berries it was like these little berries and uh anyway the plot of it is like these they just say member member because it's like you get a high from just remembering things from your childhood member care bears member jaja binks member chewbacca and that's all they do and anyway there's like a whole series of episodes with these member berries but it seems all these retro reboots uh, bringing back franchises that are 20 years old or spider-man which references you know movies you know since the original spider-man with toby Maguire 
William Defoe. It goes back to that and has some references to that. So I think No Way Home did it really well. And I mean, I was in a moderately busy movie theater and there was applause several times, you know, from the people in the theater. Matrix is kind of like, I think it's like I was watching and thinking, why was this movie made? Like they do the same things with the slow motion and the, uh, bullet time and all this stuff and you just think what is going on here i do think that keanu reeves looks really good i don't know how old he is like 50 or something now he's probably slightly older than me but he looks great i know that i'm aroused every time i hear his name that's right remember 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 keanu reeves from like all time always (laughs) exactly so this is a whole member berry like kind of movie And, you know, the way it came about, I guess, is Lana Wachowski's who made the first one. Basically, the implication from watching the movie, uh, though it's a bit more complicated if you read some interviews with her, but basically, when you watch the movie, the implication is that they were going to make a Matrix movie with or without her and her sister. And so she said, well... I'll just do it then. How dare you? Yeah, I'll I'll just do it. So anyway, all I got to say about being in a movie theater watching movies is I'm not doing it again. Even though there's no food, you hear someone that of someone opening a pop in the movie. Why would you bring a can of pop? Just bring something that doesn't make noise. And clearly rustling and eating and stuff like that. You're such a movie nerd. And then people walking out like without their masks on, they clearly just took it off in the movie. I'm like, forget it. I'm not going to see a movie again today. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, whatever. Anyway, it'll be streaming for me going forward, Ellie. Or you get COVID. I've heard that's a thing people are doing. And then for 90 days, you're the strongest person on earth. That's the way they feel. People are talking a lot of of stuff about antibodies. Anyway, Spider-Man, tick, tick, boom. I don't understand why Spider-Man plays the piano in that movie, but it does look good. No, I think that's, uh, I think you're. I know. I just like to uh, bother the nerds. They get very upset about these things. I actually, I don't want to brag, but for the first time in my life, life, which is crazy. Like my parents even, like when I live with my, first time in my life, second television. What? We bought a second television. Yeah. Can you believe that? Oh my gosh. Wow. I know. It's insane. For the first time in my life, we bought a second television and we did it specifically because I finally want to just, I don't want to schedule time of like, what, you guys are watching this? Well, can I watch this later? Well, can't you just watch it on your laptop? Why can't you watch it on your laptop? There's a lot of that. You know what I mean? And so- uh, They're like, we don't have laptops. Oh. No, they have laptops. I'm not a, I don't run a fascist dictatorship in my home. The, the children have laptops, but uh, they're allowed to be on screens sometimes. It's huge, man. It's huge. And we're, you know, it'll take a year or so, but I'll, I'll eventually set up like a proper, what do you call those? I don't even know. Home theater is what we call it. Oh home theater? God. I don't even know the lingo because I've never had it. I know, it's rough. And then you can also have people opening pops and walking around with no masks. So perfect. And that's fine, right? It'll be people related to me. What do I care? But yeah, there's never been a time. And by the way, let me just say this. Bought the TV and then found out (laughs) it went on sale and the company gave me $400 back. Wow. Yeah, isn't that great? Isn't that a good feeling? Now you, It's like you love your TV, but then when you look at your TV and you go, man, you gave me 400 bucks back in my pocket TV, you're the best. Moving on to something that you have said you're very fascinated by, I guess, right? I was going to say enamored, but I don't think that's right. You've talked about being fascinated by this idea 
of comedy personas. What is it that tickled your fancy about these people and their personas? Yeah, well, what I want to ask you about was about these personas, because some, you know, I guess how you decide on this, because there are some comedy performers who are pretty much, you know, what you see is what you get, right? Then there's other ones who they're clearly playing a character. And I don't know, I guess maybe oh, this is a good question for you. To some extent, is everyone playing a character? But I'm thinking of extreme examples. So I guess from, you know, when I was younger in high school and university, the ones I think about is Emo Phillips, Stephen Wright, Bobcat Goldthwait as well. Bobcat had that screechy voice. Stephen Wright was super deadpan. And Emo Phillips, I don't even know how you describe Emo Phillips' comedy, like super weird. I don't, I don't know. Like I don't even know how to describe it. I'll always remember the last words my grandfather said to me: "A truck." That's an Emo Phillips joke. Very, very simple. Very. I did not do the accent properly at all. It came out. Of, I didn't know you were going to mention Emo Phillips. There was a time where I could impersonate him, but masterful, masterful. And for me, when people do stuff in character. You know, it's like multiple layers, you know, it's like when I watch Tony Collette and I do often one of my favorite actors. I love this woman. You forget she's Australian. So not only is she working on doing either a British accent or an American accent or whatever, you know, she's also working on typically nailing these very, very impassioned, emotional scenes, you know? It's very often that you have, it's just full, if you, I, we watched Wanderlust recently, my wife and I, and God, she's so good. She's so good. She's doing that in a British accent, right? So it's similar to that, I find. Also, some people do a persona because they can't stand who they are as people. And they're like, I'm not funny, but I could be funny if I do this, right? So sometimes it's more sort of running away from who you really are and kind of protecting yourself as well in a way, because it's like, if people hate me on stage, what do I do? Because there's only me. I can't, can't get away from the me. But if they hate this character, I can almost say, well, it wasn't really me. So I'm still a good person. People like me. There's for sure that operating with some people when they choose to do a character. I never chose to do a character. I sort of you know, on the extreme of people who just are themselves, I think Mark Marin comes up as a guy who is basically himself. You know, if you listen to the Mark Marin's WTF podcast, you hear Mark, it's him on stage. It's the same guy, just a little bit more enraged by various issues. I've heard myself, you know, a number of times from people saying you're one of the closest people to who you are in real life to who you are on stage. And that's fine, but I definitely do have a level of respect for people who play these characters. Like, you mentioned Emo Phillips. Like, you know, you're writing an act for basically a different person. It's not you. Like, Emo doesn't speak that way. Emo, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, it's quite a challenge. It's like you're a writer for someone else, basically. Yeah, and I think of it as more of these older comics. But then you think about, like, Zach Galifianakis, especially in the stand-up, but also Between Two Ferns, which is one of the funniest things I think you could watch on YouTube, which is him interviewing various celebrities, and he's just such a jerk in this character. Listen, you know he's not, because if you watch the outtake, they're all laughing together and things like that. But, uh, you know, maybe that persona-type comedy has kind of shifted over time. I don't know. You know, it's interesting. There's a Vulture article on this very subject. What they suggest is that because of Twitter and because of podcasts, comedy has shifted to be more personal. 
confessional, right? Like Emo Phillips couldn't really have a podcast or if he did, he'd have to be in character for an hour or two hour podcast every week. It would be a little bit strange, you know, where when you listen to Bill Burr, it's basically Bill Burr. You're getting Bill Burr, like his jokes are beautifully crafted on stage, let's say, but it's a looser, still very funny version of Bill in his podcast. And it's a way for him to connect to tens of thousands of people and then have those people come to the show, right? It's like your business card. You're constantly giving a business card out. Well, this is, hey, I'm going to give my business card out to 10,000 people or whatever it is, 100,000 people every Monday morning. And I'm going to build my community. And and they're suggesting that Twitter, you can do the same. Although Twitter, you can pl- very much play a character. You can use irony and all that. But once you have your voice out in an intimate medium like podcasting, you know, it does change the landscape a bit. And I think maybe we're at a point where personas aren't as popular as they once were. But for some people, you know, you still have people who live in the world of improv and sketch and are constantly doing characters. And so I'll tell you a story about this past semester. One of my students actually was a little bit worried about uh, some of the stuff he was saying on stage. And he was like, sir, do you think this could come back and, you know, bite me on the butt somehow? Because I'm saying these things that might be construed as, you know, offensive. I don't know. And I said, you know, you have to be able to sell it and stand behind it on stage. Otherwise, people sniff you out as a bit of a fraud, you know. And if there is something that you don't fully stand behind and you're worried you won't deliver it, my suggestion would be don't deliver it. Rewrite the joke so that you can stand behind it or follow up with like, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, and feel comfortable in the fact that you would say I'm kidding and people would get it. What he did in the end is he adopted a character. He adopted like a high-pitched Gilbert Gottfried type of character who was like, yeah, you know what I've always thought? I've always thought. And I said to him, look, it's kind of genius what you're doing here. You're distancing yourself. Let's say his name was John. You're distancing yourself, John, from your words by putting this character between you, you know, and so you can later defend yourself as well and be like, no, that's not how I felt. That's what this character would feel. And I have a really good buddy, you know, I'll I'll leave his name out of it just because, you know, it's his character. And I don't think everybody knows he's doing a character, but he puts on this character, this accent. And, you know, I've seen him do comedy in the early days without the accent. And it was just kind of like an angry dude, an angry white dude. And it wasn't funny. And as soon as he did very similar jokes, if not the exact same jokes with an accent, I was like, wow, I've seen the power of the accent that way, right? Where you... Once you're using it, it's like uh, there's some charm there. There's some disconnect between an actual person saying this or you and I know tons of people with accents and people with accents can get away with stuff that people without accents can't. And the flip, right? Sometimes the opposite is true. Well, this is what I wanted to talk to you about because I'm just thinking about some of these classic persona comedians and Larry the Cable Guy, you know, and I'm sure there's some people rolling their eyes when I say Larry the Cable Guy. Oh, yeah, that kind of humor. But his story is very interesting. You know, he did stand up. He did a lot of stand up in in Florida. And he was just a regular comic. He doesn't have an accent in real life or he's very slight accent. uh, But he just talks kind of normally. And I heard that. Wait, you're telling me that his first name is not Larry and his last name is not the cable guy like that's a character yeah it's get interesting right and he doesn't always say get her he doesn't say get her done so i heard this story from a podcast of mike lawrence you know the comedian mike lawrence a very funny 
very funny guy. His mom was a comedian, and so he, she would tour around with Larry the Cable Guy back in the day, and she was told the story like he was just like the average regular kind of comic going around Florida. And then uh, he didn't really have that much success with it. And then he would start to do like, like these morning shows, these syndicated morning shows, and he'd be a call in person and he had this larry the cable guy persona and then he realized that that was it that was getting so successful so then he pivoted his act to that and you know he has sold at madison square gardens he's had like you know hundreds of thousands of sales of his comedy albums you know he's a movie star he just did so well with that and even though that's not really him but this whole persona like just took off for him totally and i think you know very very tricky to ditch the persona Right, to back off on that. Yeah, exactly. And so this is the other guy I wanted to ask you about is the Dice Man, Andrew Dice Clay. We can talk about personalities and shaking personalities because, you know, he started off just doing mainly impressions. And he had this part of his act. I don't know if you know this. He had this part of his act where he would kind of imitate Jerry Lewis from The Nutty Professor. You know, the kind of like, you know, that kind of like uh, personality. And then he would transform on stage by just – changing his costume really quickly and putting on a leather jacket. He would be like a John Travolta in Greece kind of character. And he'd go back and forth between those. And he said one day he uh, was at a club and somebody, I guess, canceled or something like that. And they said, you know, can you fill in for someone? And he's like, sure. But he didn't have his Jerry Lewis stuff. He only had the John Travolta, you know, leather kind of guy. So he just did that act. And that was so successful. And that was the dice man with his, you know, Basically, misogynistic jokes and uh, all the other garbage associated with him. The important distinction with the Dice Man is that he's actually a prick in real life and then a prick on stage. So it's not too much of a – anyway, that's just – I know a little bit about him and he's not a terrific human being. But yeah, no, it is very interesting that how he came upon a very – whether I'm a fan or not, very, very successful character. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a really good article in the New York Times about him from a couple of years ago, you know, because he became this dramatic actor. He was in Blue Jasmine with Kate Blanchett. He was on Vinyl, the Martin Scorsese-produced TV show. He's a very good actor. He was in A Star is Born, and I didn't even realize that he was in A Star is Born. Yeah, he was the dad of Lady Gaga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, that guy was amazing. Then you read afterwards, what? Andrew Dice Clay? It doesn't make any sense, but this is the same guy who, what, remember he was on Saturday Night Live and Nora Dunn and... And Sinead O'Connor bailed on the show. They like boycotted it. I mean, uh, yeah. And so that article is very interesting because he says it's a character, but then sometimes you read it and you're like, oh, I'm not quite sure it was a character. And so, yeah, you see this kind of range of options, right? Pure character, yeah. right? Parts of you kind of just dialed up. And that's what Anthony Jeselnik said in this Vulture article you were talking about, he says he took the idea of his, because he's apparently super harsh, right, on stage. He's very dark. He's very dark. Very, very funny. Masterful writer, but very dark. It's not for everybody. And he says he got that from professional wrestling. And then one day we'll talk about the similarities between wrestling, professional wrestling and comedian, stand-up comedy especially. I know you're very excited to record that episode one day. Yes, that's right. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. Maybe we'll find one of your buddies who's uh, into both. But There's no short of of wrestling nerds (laughs) or comedians. (laughs) Yes. So he took it from ravishing Rick Rude. I don't know if you remember this guy. This guy's in super good shape rick rude as a wrestler and he would get up on there and he's like he's gonna take off his robe and he's like i want all you fat out of shape minnesota morons to keep the noise down while i take off my robe and show you what a real man looks like you know and like 
emasculating him. He was the ultimate heel. And so Justin like took that idea, like you just take yourself and turn it up to eleven, and like all these dark, angry thoughts, like he's just turning that up. I think as your progression to this kind of range of comedy, pure character, just turning yourself up. But then I'm just thinking about what you said a few minutes ago about the rise of Twitter and the confessional comedy. Now it's almost too much. Again, we've talked about this a bit before. Uh, some of these comedy specials that aren't really funny, like I think of Patton Oswalt's Annihilation, talking about his spouse who passed away, Chris Rock Tambourine, talking about his failed marriage. And like half of these specials, they're not funny at all. And you're crying during Patton Oswalt's thing because it's so sad about what happened to his wife. And Sure. Hannah Gatsby's Nanette, there was a lot of uh, a backlash about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, the Nanette issue is also a, definitely a, some misogyny wrapped in there too because I think Chris Rock had also, you know, laid a foundation with a lot of people that maybe Hannah Gadsby hadn't. A lot of people in North America didn't know who she was. I didn't see a lot of criticism. Criticism of, of Tambourine and Chris Rock specials, mainly for me. Like, I just didn't think it was that funny. I think he has some issues to work out. But looking at Patton Oswalt's, like, everybody, oh, it's amazing, you know? Can you believe he combined comedy with this tragedy that happened in his life? Yeah, people were criticizing Hannah Gadsby way more for the same sort of thing, so... But again, it goes to like this confessional, personal comedy. Like if it's that personal, you have to get into some real stuff, which is not going to necessarily be that funny, right? That's just the way it is. And and I don't know. like, And that's why quote unquote hiding behind the character, the character can always be funny, right? The character never has a bad day. Or maybe the character's character is to always have had a bad day. You don't think of Jeremy Hotz or somebody like that. So there's value in that too. You know, you could say hiding behind, but I don't mean that always pejoratively. Yeah, the confessional has gone into a, a heck of a place. I will say this, two quizzes for you, Asif. So three people in the 60s and 70s were, you know, these are phenomenal comedians who had characters and they dropped their characters. They came on stage as something they weren't and then became very much became themselves. Yeah. This I think I know because you could think of Richard Pryor, right? Who was he basically like emulated Cosby. That's what and yep, yeah, somebody told him that too. Uh, Don Rickles or Bob Hope or somebody was like, Oh yeah, you must watch a lot of Cosby, something like that. And he was like, Oh god, I don't want to hear that again. And then he got rid of that and you know, he became He was very much a suit and tie on Ed Sullivan when he was coming on there and then afterwards. Pretty, you know, jean jacket and high on crack. It was a different sort of, you know, very much more in line with his own behavior. Yes. So you will know number two, the other guy. The other guy is, I guess, Carlin. It is Carlin. But I said there's three. I said there's three. Okay. So Carlin for sure, because he was the same thing, Ed Sullivan. He's on all the late night shows. Correct. The hippy-dippy weatherman. He was kind of corny by our standards and then came back and embraced counterculture and anti-war and yeah. Summer lifestyle and things like that. Yeah. Okay. The third one. I don't know. I don't know. Number three. Okay, yes. It's a woman, 60s and 70s, huge force to be reckoned with. I don't know. Joan Rivers, buddy. Joan Rivers. Really? I just know her from her harsher stuff. It was very non-harsh. Very non-harsh. It was very, like, polite, girl next door, very self-deprecating, and she flipped it all around. She's like, why am I taking a huge crap on myself? I'm going to make fun of people in the audience. But she always did it with the nausea 
I also make fun of myself, so don't you. Yeah, she still does that, obviously. Yeah, don't worry about that. Well, she's passed away now, but yes, she did that too. Yeah, no, no. And I think we've talked about her before. We've talked about Hacks, which is so inspired by her. I love Joan Rivers. I think she is, and sorry, I think she was so funny and one of the greats of comedy. Yeah, those are great examples, yeah. If you're interested in looking up characters, we've mentioned some of these. Anthony Jeselnik is something, you know, very unique. People will say that Sarah Silverman is playing a character up there. You know, Zach Galifianakis on stage is phenomenal. If you don't know who Emo Phillips is, I encourage you to look. He's one of the most bizarre and yet brilliant comedy performers of all time, I would say. All right, so we have to close up something that you opened. Uh, we have to uh, neatly tie a bow on the box of physician burnout. It's not going to be that neat of tying that up, yeah, but we should talk about it. We should talk about it because we never talked about, I mean, maybe solutions is too strong, but possible solutions or suggestions for solutions. We talked about the idea that it's very prevalent. And, and you know, it's interesting that I was also, I was curious the way you were saying it, I was wondering if, you know, in comedy and so many industries and in life, people are like, it's not like it used to be back in my day, you know? And I was wondering if it's, are there doctors who are like, oh, burnout, burnout. When I was coming up, nobody burnt out. Or is it a thing that has always been the case, never spoken about, never addressed, and now it's coming to the forefront, but has it always been a thing? Uh, or are they burning out more? No, I think what you said is correct. It's only being addressed and talked about now, but it was in the past. It's kind of like, you know, when soldiers were going to war, think about World War II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, and they come back, they all clearly had PTSD, but we didn't have a name for it back then. And that's why you had rampant alcoholism and uh, spousal abuse and things like that. People trying to deal with some of these things that were never talked about. Anxiety, depression, not talked about. The same thing we talked about last time, we talked about burnout, where, you know, the suicide rate is very high amongst physicians. Alcoholism is very high amongst physicians. Spousal abuse is very high amongst physicians. And again, I think maybe we didn't talk about burnout. You said, oh, just suck it up. But there are some consequences to this burnout. And like I said, I draw the parallel to those in the military who served in combat zones. But in terms of what we can do about it, you can think about... And also tell me who the we is. Are we basically... Does the responsibility now fall on hospital administration? And the, like, is it a top-down thing? Or are there more... Who else is involved in this? Perfect. That's exactly what I want to talk to you about. Because it's both, right? It's individuals and organizations. And let's divide those up. So let's talk about what individuals can do first. And so... There's, there's a really good article. I'll link to a couple of them. But the Mayo Clinic has done so much research on this topic, and they have a very good article, which I'll link to you for the listeners. So some solutions for burnout. Okay, maybe it's going part-time. Maybe it's changing your practice in a certain way that's more accommodating to your lifestyle. But already, you could probably guess, what are some problems with that? I mean, the backlog of patients that people have, the backlog will only get bigger, I imagine. Right. And the backlog of debt that people have. If you have $500,000 in debt, 
I can go part-time. You know, some people also suggest informed specialty choices. So some people, there are, I, I won't, maybe I won't name the specialties because I don't want to denigrate anybody, but there are ones that are called lifestyle kind of specialties, right? Where you have a better lifestyle, better on-call. Radiology, anesthesiology. You didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything like that. And then they're like, you know, maybe do some training for people. This is, again, at the individual level. You know, some efficiency and skills training. Do you know uh, when we first introduced our electronic medical record? Nobody at work knows this except for the one guy who's the physician in charge of the computer systems and things like that. You had a breakdown and you cried? No, it's the opposite. He knocked on my door. He, he shall remain nameless, but anybody who works with me knows who I'm talking about, a good friend of mine. He knocked on my door. He said, oh, I have something to tell you. I said, like, we implemented the electronic medical record. And they can gauge how quick people are at you know performing a certain task, entering orders, writing a note, or things like that. And then they're like, guess who is the most efficient in this hospital in terms of physicians? Not you. You're one of the slowest. Me? No. Me? No. No. I am amazing because it's not typing out your note. I take forever for that. I'm a horrible typer, but just clicking out everything because I know how EMRs work. Like I figured it out quickly. Oh, so you don't have to type anything in the electronic medical records? Will you notes? I have a lot of shortcuts that kind of work around some of these oh, things. Oh, you lucky dog. Oh, man, if you had to type stuff, you would be like a remedial student, remedial medical student. They'd be like, we need to send you back. Does everybody know that I got 58% in uh, grade nine typing? It's true. And I still became a doctor, so I know. Why am I telling people? I didn't know there was an option to fail typing. Typing was just practicing the keyboard. This the, it's maybe the best class I ever took. I came 9% away from testing out that theory. But anyway, listen, I'm the most efficient physician in the world at uh, electronic medical records. That's what my colleague told me. He didn't say that. Funny that nobody else knows that, as you said. He'll know. Nobody else knows. <laughs> Efficiency, skills, training. So that's useful, right? So maybe you can teach, or I could teach, say at my hospital, people, okay, here's how you become more efficient with the EMR. That's another thing that people can do or learn to prioritize, right? Like some of my friends, they only check their email two or three times a day, unlike all of us who are constantly on our phones. They set aside time to do email and, and they prioritize. Other things you can do, try and attend to your self-care, you know, go for vacations, go for massage, things, uh, like, you know, things like that, things that help you relax, yoga, learning coping strategies, things like mindfulness. I don't know if you're into mindfulness, but a lot of people talk about uh, mindfulness. I'm getting into it. I'm getting into it. I might have something to say about that soon enough. And then they also talk about resilience training. So this is where an issue sort of comes up, right? When it comes to things to focus on individual. And I think there are stuff we can all do as an individual. Scale back things at work, focus on what we really find enjoyable. We talked about that, about how if you can carve out more and more time for things you find really enjoyable, that can help your self-esteem, that can prevent burnout. Well, I'm already concerned about this idea that, okay, you're burnt out as a physician. You got way too much work. You're overwhelmed. You just gave me a list of solutions such as, you know, cutting things, balance, prioritizing, cutting down your schedule, how much you work. And then you just said resilience training. So if I'm overwhelmed and somebody goes, don't worry, we have a course that you can take. Like, Dude, I just said I have no more room on my plate for anything. Yeah. Perfect. That's exactly because time is one of the major factors that we don't have enough of, right, as physicians. Exactly. The other thing is a lot of physicians now are feeling this is putting the burden on them, right, and almost blaming them. Like, 
well, you're not resilient enough. If only you were more resilient, none of this would be happening. And thankfully, there are some studies that go against this. Uh, one study that was published in JAMA Open, which we'll link to, surveyed over 5,000 doctors. And you could measure resilience. There are scales that you do and scores you can get to measure resilience. And they found doctors actually had higher resilience than the general population. And each point increase in resilience score was associated with a lower risk of burnout. So that makes you think, oh, okay, well, so in other words, the more resilient physicians are burnt out less. But that's not the case because they found that 29% of physicians with the highest possible resilience scores still had burnout. So resilience is protective, but eventually even the most resilient people are still going to have burnout. So this idea that people just aren't resilient enough is probably not appropriate. And so what a lot of physicians feel, though, is if you just focus on the individuals and don't focus on the organizations, it's a lot of blaming, you know, the problem on physicians. And so I'm going to play for you this video by our friend of the show, uh, Dr. Glaucom Flecken. Knock, knock. Hi, I'm the new med student. Oh, hi. Welcome to the ICU. Let me introduce you to everyone. Oh, okay. This is Tim. He's one of our residents. Hey, how's it going? And over there, we got Jerry. He's one of our awesome nurses. Hey, nice to meet you. And then we got one of our other critical care doctors over there. Hey, what's up? Is everybody okay? Hmm? Oh, the tears, yeah. Well, we used to step outside to cry, but we're short-staffed now, so we just openly weep while continuing to practice critical care medicine. Why is everyone so sad? Oh, you know, fifth wave of the pandemic. The unvaccinated just keep coming in. Is the hospital doing anything to help you guys? Well, they gave us some resiliency pizza. Didn't take. Is there anything I can do? Sure. How do you feel about getting yelled at for trying to save people's lives? So what Dr. Glauco, if I can talk about in this video, is this idea of this resiliency pizza. He's making a joke about resiliency pizza. Like, in other words, you know, some healthcare organizations think, okay, we'll just provide free pizza or ice cream or things like that. And that kind of will cheer everybody up and prevent burnout. Sure. Like casual Fridays. <laughs> That's right. Like the fact that I can wear jeans instead of pants means I somehow will be able to cope with work better. Is that a thing though? Or is that a joke about a broader, like, is there such a thing as resilience, resiliency pizza? Would it have that name? I think organizations do a lot of things like that, which are nice, you know, free food or things like that, or gifts, you know, people at the holidays and things like that. I think they, they definitely do that. The real question is, is that is that helping to prevent burnout? Probably not. What people get a bit jaded about, though, is if that's all that's being done. Uh, let me right? ask you, though, does you it have the name? Hey, guys, Resiliency Friday Pizza? No, no, resiliency? No, no. no, okay, all right, okay. Because that's demeaning. No, it was a joke by Dr. Glaucon Flecken, our friend. So, listen, I talked about the Mayo Clinic, and I talked about this article. They have nine strategies that they think are very important for organizations to address. So this could be hospitals. It could be like in, in where we live in Ontario. It could be the Ministry of Health, which is the one responsible for funding physicians and hospitals. Or in the U.S., it could be HMOs, right? And again, we've talked about HMOs in the past. Uh, so nine is kind of a lot of things to go over. But honestly, I feel this is so important. And I think physicians have heard so much about Oh, resiliency training and work-life balance and blah, blah, blah. But we don't talk about these kind of organizational things enough. So I do want to spend a bit of time on that if possible. I'll allow it. Thanks, Judge. 
Hassan. So, okay, the first strategy they have is to acknowledge and assess the problem. And this is a lot of, so it's like I said, it's Mayo Clinic stuff. They're basing it on what they've experienced at Mayo Clinic and what's in the scientific literature. They said, you know, one of the first things is they had their CEO at the Mayo Clinic acknowledge it's difficult being a physician in today's world. And it's acknowledging it and also saying, you know, hospitals have metrics in terms of waiting lists and patient satisfaction. One metric should be physician well-being. And if you put that as one of the things that we're trying to achieve, and it's just as important as some of these other metrics, wait times, you know, income generated and all these other things, then it shows to physician that you're putting your money where your mouth is. So they say measuring uh, physician well-being and having targets for that definitely helps. The second strategy is harnessing the power of leadership. At the Mayo Clinic, they found that they can do these leadership scores for like physician leaders. And if your leadership score was high, it decreased the likelihood. Each increase by one point in the leadership scale had a 3.3 decrease in likelihood of burnout in people who reported to that leader and a 9% increase in satisfaction. So it kind of starts at the top, right? If leadership is aware and acknowledging these things and working hard to be effective leaders, then you can decrease the burnout. And also, it means leaders allowing people, remember, we've, now we said this several times, to do what they find rewarding in their work. And if at least 20% of your work is focused on something that you personally find rewarding and meaningful, that lowers the risk of burnout. So that's something that leaders have to keep in mind for people. The third one is uh, to develop and implement targeted interventions. So what they would do at the Mayo Clinic, for example, they do surveys, burnout surveys, which exist in the whole organization, and they target specific areas where there was a high risk of burnout. And then they would go there and really try and identify, okay, what are the factors here? Is it long hours? Is it too much paperwork or whatever? And then they would try and intervene. So what they try and do is it makes physicians think that they're, you know, the problem with burnout is people feel helpless, they feel powerless. But if the administration is going to you and saying, hey, listen, we see in your unit there's burnout, what can we do to help? It's very powerful. The other strategy, which I think you're going to have find a problem with currently, but it's creating a community at work. So usually what would happen is you have peer support at work, right? You'd be sitting in the doctor's lounge, you chat with your friends, you don't see that often, your colleagues, and you discuss things. And But with doctor's lounges, they have been being decreased over time for various reasons. Space in hospitals, you know, you want to be equal. Well, there should be a nurse's lounge. There should be a technologist's lounge. There should be the janitorial staff lounge. Why do only physicians get it? But the problem is you decrease these areas for interpersonal connections amongst physicians, and then they have other things that they're worrying about, seeing patients or things like that, so they don't get this downtime to kind of feel like they're part of a community. And in the Mayo Clinic example, they had uh, dedicated meeting areas with free fruit and beverages, computer stations, lunch tables, some food for purchase for their physicians and administrators, and they found that was a very popular model, and they expanded it to all the different kind of Mayo Clinic campuses. So they suggest doing something like that to help interaction. But what's the problem right now in the pandemic? Everything's virtual, right? So I didn't know you were waiting for me to say, yes, everything's virtual. Everything's virtual, just like our podcast. It's all virtual. So this is the problem, right? Is And you can sense maybe that's why burnout is so much higher because you don't even get a chance to see your friends. And everybody I know at work has the same interaction. 
you know, when I'm on call and I'm in the hospital, I'll go up, say, to the intensive care unit to do a consultation on a patient. I'll run into one of my friends and we sit there talking for two hours, even after I've already seen the patient. And it's because we never get to see each other and just chat and, and things like that. So we end up spending all this time just, just chatting. And, and so that's what we miss, you know. The uh, fifth strategy is to use rewards and incentives wisely. So a lot of places. I'm very lucky at at my hospital. I'm on a salary, so I get paid a fixed salary. But some physicians practice in ways where the more productive you are, the more you can increase revenue generation, the more money you get paid, right? Which seems good. But there are some downsides to that, right? How can you increase your productivity and your money that you make? You could shorten the time you spend with a patient. You could maybe order more tests or procedures, that's more of a U.S. thing because that's one of the income generation things is ordering tests and things like that. But again, it's less for Canada or working longer hours. So two of those things, ordering more tests or procedures is probably not that good for the patient. You don't want to do things unnecessarily. Spending less time with the patient, no patient wants that. And working longer is bad for you. So maybe people have to – these places where they're kind of based on – productivity, you got to change the way you look at incentivizing work. And you're incentivizing people to overwork, right? Maybe you're overworking due to debt or doing some of these things that aren't in the best interest of the patient. So one solution is salaries, as we talked about. Another one is more flexibility. When you work, what hours you work and things like that. The sixth one is aligning values and strengthening culture. So you could do surveys of physicians and a lot of organizations do this where you say you know every organization whether it's a hospital or hmo has a mission statement this is our mission you know to provide treatment for patients etc etc whatever the mission statement is but you want to make sure that your values are aligning with what you're doing and the perceptions of the physicians right and surveys to make sure that's going on is good because if there's a discrepancy felt between the mission of the organization and how the physicians are feeling that's going to contribute to burnout A few more things. The seventh one is to promote flexibility and work-life integration. So now we're talking about this work-life integration. You know, physicians are nearly twice as likely to be dissatisfied with work-life integration as U.S. workers in any other field. And part of that is work hours. 45% of physicians work more than 60 hours a week. And only about 10% of workers in other fields work more than 60 hours a week. So again, we talked about adjusting work hours, maybe uh, reducing days that you work. And reducing professional work hours can help individuals recover from burnout. That's been shown through uh, scientific studies. Maybe you want to work longer one day, shorter in other days. I think these are all useful things. And to be honest with you, here's a good thing about the pandemic. I know there's been a lot of negative things to be said about it. But for example, because we now have virtual visits, right? If I want to book a patient in the clinic, I had my set clinic days. And sometimes it's hard to see a patient outside of those clinic hours. But when I'm doing virtual visits that I can take from anywhere, suddenly I have a lot more flexibility in my day. True, but it's hard for me to show you my rash online, no? But no, dude, telemedicine for dermatology is huge. Is it? Okay. Yeah, we should ask your friend who's the dermatologist. But yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So as long as you have a good camera, then it usually works. Phone calls don't help as much for dermatologists. And institutions should also look at things like, and this is especially true in the U.S., uh, vacation benefits, so paid vacation, right? A lot of physicians don't have paid vacation. If you take vacation, it's on your own dime because you're self-employed. The problem with that is that it encourages people to not take vacation and be rested. Coverage for life events like illness or death in the family and a birth of a child, right? Still in the U.S., six weeks is typical maternity for a woman. 
And, you know, whereas you could take a lot longer in Canada. So these are things that need to be considered. But if a place is what we call a fee-for-service place, or you just kind of, if you're not working, you're not making money, then you're not inclined to take time off for something like a birth of a child. Because some practices, they discourage you taking vacation so you can make more money. And that's really short-sighted. You probably should stop doing that. So the eighth strategy is to provide resources to promote resilience and self-care. So that's what we were talking about before, all those individual level things that we talked about before. So provide those courses and things like that. But as we talked about, and I'll just quote from the article because I think it's really important what they say. When individually focused offerings are not coupled with sincere efforts to address the system-based issues contributing to burnout, this approach is typically met with skepticism and resistance by physicians. For example, they're implying that I'm the problem. In this context, the response to well-intentioned resilience training is frequently a cynical one. You want me more resilient so you can further increase my workload. That's all a quote from the article. So that's the problem. So again, if these are coupled with organizational changes, it tends to work better. And then the last strategy is to actually facilitate and fund science to look at what are the drivers of burnout, what really works, like doing testing to see. So we actually have some peer-reviewed knowledge about what actually helps with burnout and what doesn't help. So those are the main strategies. I will tweet out and put on Instagram a copy of a figure from this uh, article that goes through those nine different strategies so people can take a look. And we'll also have a link to the article so people can take a look. So I think there are ways to address it. I think it's tough right now during COVID, but, you know, no time like the present, right? Like this is when people need support the most. So I think it's important to start these things as soon as possible in any organization and individually for yourself too. So to end this on a personal note, Asif, I feel, and I might be wrong, but I feel that you're not burnt out. And I say that because I know you listen to a lot of music and you watch a lot of TV shows and you listen to a lot of, you know, watch a lot of movies, but chicken and the egg, which came first? Are you not burnt out because you make time for TV and film and music? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. Burnout is a bit of a continuum, in my opinion. It's like asking people if they're religious. There's always somebody more or less religious than you, and there's always someone more burnt out than you and less burnt out than you. And so I think maybe people think that, but no, obviously I am. But I, again, I've tried to do things to help and mitigate that personally. Again, I don't have a lot of control over work, but I certainly try and do it as much as possible with people who work with me. But for individually, what I do is I do continue to do things that I enjoy. I'm lucky I enjoy seeing patients at work, so that really helps. And for me, like as you said, relaxing, listening to music, listening to a podcast, and doing this podcast, actually, that's actually the main thing. Like, yeah, someone was asking me, in fact, it was my daughter, uh, we were talking about the podcast, and she said, you know, would you have done the podcast if it wasn't for the pandemic? And I'm not sure if I would have had the time. We talked about the Zoom technology. Zoom technology, again, you don't have to get into the details of how recording works, but it used to be somewhat difficult. You need to use a couple of programs to be able to get the audio from each participant in a Zoom call. And Zoom made it very easy now. It's really quite easy to do things. You know, you don't have to be in person anymore to do a podcast. So I'm not sure if we would have gotten around to doing it without the pandemic. So this is one of the things I do that keeps my mind off stressful things and things like that. So I, I encourage everybody to do as much of as they can on an individual basis. And then hopefully the organizations will also take this to heart 
and look at implementing some of these changes. All right, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you for listening, everybody. We are available on many, many different platforms. Yeah, we're on lots of things. We're on uh, YouTube, we're on Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. So that's actually one thing I want to mention. Spotify now has a rating system. They just came out with it in the past month. So if you listen to us on Spotify, please rate our podcast. Of course, there's still you know, discussion about how that's going to affect your rankings on Spotify and things like that. But as Spotify becomes more and more of a podcast player in the world, it's very important. So please remember to rank us on Spotify if you listen to us there. And reach out to us, Dr. V Comedian, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're also available by email, drvcomedian at gmail.com. Let us know about any topics. Let us know what you thought about this uh, episode. And remember that although I am a doctor, I am not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.